0: Right. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and Fully Self Enlightened One. So we've um, either refreshed our understanding or been introduced to a particular practice, particular methodology to uh, investigate our situation we've um, that's the vipassana we've um, gone into the um, characteristics which is the what it is we're trying to actually see more clearly Uh, from the Buddha's point of view remember it's the way we're looking which is our fault we're not seeing things as as he would put it as they really are (coughs) And he points to these three avenues of investigation, the, the impermanence, the idea of not self, not me, not mine, and the psychology around desire, sensual desire, desire which, which basically says we're seeking happiness in the sensual world, as uh, the three avenues of investigation which should eventually correct our view and have... Uh, an effect on us Um, in the Eightfold Path the effect is meant to be systemic and we'll come to that this evening and then we uh, talked about the various hindrances, the mental states that arise in meditation which we have to work with but from, uh, from the importance of this suffering business It was also recognising that even though we're investigating these three characteristics, the actual process of purifying the heart, what would these days be called therapy, is actually happening quite unwittingly. It's just happening of itself. And the the main technique there, you might say, was to depersonalise it. And we depersonalise these emotions when we take the stories away. The stories that turn them into a continuous sense of me or mine, when we just bury our attention into just the feeling, just the feeling sense of an emotion, the sense, the sensational sense of an emotion, then it becomes a very different sort of experience. And at that point we have to be aware of our reaction to these things, where another story starts up, you know, I can't take it, I want this. The I always appears somewhere. So now, this evening, it's it's really the time to talk on the more sort of positive side of how these, of how we bring about a a transformation. Um, If we stay just there, you know, there's there might be an understanding. Well, you just end up, you know, without greed or without hatred, and it's a sort of um, flat state a of nondescript state of, of, not be, of not being anything. But uh, <coughs> according, again, to the Buddha's understanding, what happens is uh, almost uh, a natural transformation of those particular attitudes into their opposites. In the Zen tradition, they'll tell you that um, uh, compassion arises naturally with wisdom. Okay? And uh, there was one teacher in London, she died recently... Um, Oh, my name's just slipped my mind, who wouldn't do any loving-kindness practice, That was a waste of time. <laughs> because from her point of view, uh, with wisdom, compassion arises naturally. And in a sense, that's what, what you might say happened to the Buddha himself, because his um, great intention was to, you know, seek some sort of answer to his, uh, his own problems, um, even at that most sort of existential level the, the angst of the question of why am I here in the first place you know and who am I in the context of the cosmos and all that and uh, having answered all those questions and understanding what he'd come to realize uh, like na- quite naturally you know the the desire to pass on this information to other human beings just arose naturally hmm? there was a doubt there seems a a doubt arose in his mind at the time as to whether anybody would actually understand it so subtle had been his experience and um, as it's put in in the mythology the great Brahma Sahampati came down and said to him that there were people with only a little dust in their eyes so that's when he he started off on his teaching journey so how how are we already generating in our practice in the actual sitting and what the work we've been doing this weekend uh, the foundations for this transformation yeah <coughs> so when we talk about transformation we're just talking about these this this energy that we experience within ourselves that we call emotions and mental thoughts how do we you know move them over to to the opposite of what of the of the the more negative states that we experience, you know, how does, uh, how does hatred transmute into love and cruelty into compassion, how loneliness uh, transmutes into solitude, things like that, how stinginess and selfishness transmute into uh, generosity. So the first thing is to recognize how important this uh, quality of equanimity is. Um, that's what we've been you know, developing when we're practicing this quiet abiding um, the thing about equanimity in this sense is that it's the, it's the platform you see upon which these other um, qualities can develop more purely it seems to balance them out it seems to give them um, a, a pure basis to arise from and that's really the importance of this quality of equanimity. What is that quality, see? From the, <clears throat> from the mind's point of view, it's coming from a position of don't know or not sure. So we're open, yeah? We're actually open. We're ready to receive some information. And from the heart's point of view, it's not, it's not coming from a prejudicial situation. It's not being discolored by whether you like somebody or don't like somebody it's an open-heartedness and an open-mindedness that's the that's the qualities of this um, of this uh, upeka, equanimity and uh, you'll see that some writers like uh, Nyanaponika in his book on vision of the Dharma uh, quite clearly states that this is the greatest of all virtues because of that because it, it sustains the balance of the others you see so when it comes to something like um, the the other three, other three illimitables, so they, there are four qualities that are called illimitables, love, compassion, joy, and this equanimity. And they're illimitables in the sense that uh, there's, no, there's no end to which you can develop them. It's an indefinite development. Yeah? We can't say e- infinite or eternal, but we can definitely say indefinite. <laughs> and because there are innumerable numbers of beings in the world, then uh, there doesn't seem to be an end to, to, to the amount of beings that you can offer your goodwill towards. So these uh, these three limitables, uh, starting with this idea of love, you see, metta. So after this, when we do, after the walking period, we'll do an extended practice of metta. And um, those are all the qualities that you would expect of a of a good friend, Um, companionship, interest um, gentleness, openness, companionship all the, all the qualities that you would expect of a good friend would be included in the, in, the, in the idea of meta, and um, when it comes to the active qualities, so you 've got this passive quality of equanimity and you 've got these active qualities of love, compassion and joy when it comes to the those three active qualities love again becomes the basis of your of your relationship now in later Buddhism in the Mahayana Buddhism they they stressed compassion a great deal and that really was a historical development because it was felt that the early schools had been too self-centered too too much about saving themselves and uh, One of the adjustments that was made during that time was to bring in the idea of compassion. So often, if you take refuge with the the Mahayana um, uh, school, uh, you 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 take the vow not to enter into Pāṇḍhār. Somebody else goes in there, (laughs) which wasn't, luckily for us, the Buddha's own decision. So the reason why the Buddha, in the original scriptures, um talks about <laughs> give the spider a respite. Probably dropped to his death. hang on. <laughs> um, so this uh, this metta, um, uh, the Buddha in the Buddha himself we talk about now his own teachings. that was what he uh, reinforced um, uh, that was one of his teachings and he he he, he would balance it really with the with uh, the Vipassana in the discourse on on loving kindness he says that we should develop this this open love and it should be it should be balanced with 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 insight meditation um, now uh, there's a very good reason for that because if you only do vipassana there's a great danger that um, the um, it, it remains a, a sort of heady thing and it doesn't move, it doesn't move it, it can become, the wisdom can become a sort of indifference um, Have I told you the story of these two monks? Did I mention that? Because I, I, I always tell these stories so <laughs> I never know when I've told it, when I haven't well, one uh, a couple of things happened when I was in the East which sort of really showed this up, you see. Because I was with one monk and there was a, a cat and it had it obviously killed this mouse and it was still playing with it. And I said to this monk, I said, why, why didn't you stop that? Because this particular cat was well fed. He said, well, he said, it's cat karma, it's <laughs> mouse karma. I said, oh, well, fair enough. And I was at another, <laughs> what can you do? The mouse was dead. I was at another monastery and uh, there was a, uh, three or four of us just sitting on this bench talking and this cat suddenly leapt out and jumped on a bird and one of the monks who was fairly elderly shot up like lightning, you know, got a hold of this cat, gave it one hell of a belt and then saved this uh, bird but unfortunately the lungs were punctured, it had died so he very beautifully held it up by the wings and chanted the sort of death chant, an ichawata sankara, all compounded things arise and pass away. So what was, the, what was the difference between you know, the first monk and the cat karma business and the, <laughs> and the second monk and his jumping up in an attempt to save the bird, you see? And the difference was that the second monk realized that his consciousness was also part of their awareness, part of their karma. See? There wasn't that indifference to suffering. There wasn't that separation between that knowing, as it were, and what it knew. So when we're sitting in Vipassana, we create this distance. You know, we have to do so in order to, um, to see things more clearly. And we go into it, you see. Sometimes, of course, you can lace your uh, looking with a sense of kindness. I haven't mentioned that on the weekend, but you might find that also softens things. So, like when you're investigating, say, feelings of depression, you can still investigate them, but you can bring a sense of kindness to your investigation. And that has a quite a softening effect. So here we have, uh, you see, two incidents where the one, you know, was practicing or at least had understood that um, there was no no connection to be made, and the other one found an immediate connection with with the suffering of the bird. You see, I remember a, a woman came to uh, was to, uh, you know came to see me and said that, or in one of the interviews and said that. Her partner found her cold and unresponsive when after she'd meditated. So I said to her, Well, well don't you do any metta after you meditate? She said, No. I said, Well, you've got to do, it, you've got to do metta. <laughs> and you've got to bring your uh, partner to mind and an a bit of metta, you see. And um, well, that, that cleared that one up. <laughs> so you have to reconnect, you see, you have to reconnect with the world. And uh, once, you've, once we've developed that reconnection, it's a, it's a specific quality, Method is a specific quality of having the same relationship with everybody, in fact with all beings, a friendliness with all beings, you see. So that means it goes beyond this like and dislike, and that's where the attachment is. The attachment isn't in the friendliness, the attachment is in just this personality thing of like and dislike. Now I'm not so sure we can ever get over that. It's just knowing that it's there. Um, even when you read the scriptures, there's definitely, for me, a feeling that the that the Buddha had his inner crowd. Obviously, the early the earlier disciples who stayed with him, Moggallana, Sariputta, they seem to form a sort of inner inner group, you know. Um, and uh, there's a man called Kasapa, who actually leads the council after the Buddha dies who is definitely considered to be an arahat and and worthy of respect and all that sort of stuff but there's a feeling that whenever he arrives everybody goes (laughs) (laughs) and he's one of these hard forest dwelling monks you know hard on the Vinaya and all that and um, after the Buddha's death he meets Ananda Ananda was the Buddha's companion for the last 20 years and also um, uh, an awakened being and when he meets him he calls him uh, like a little kid or something slightly he says talks to him as as somebody below him and uh, a nun who's with Ananda gets angry with him so you can see (laughs) so there's some sort of um, even at that level there's just a natural quality of, of of the way personalities touch each other but that shouldn't that shouldn't be a barrier to our way to the way that we actually treat somebody this is the point uh, in other words that you like somebody or dislike them is, is probably a personality issue just the way we are but that doesn't mean to say that we should therefore treat somebody any the less friendly because of that and it's making that distinction which creates this uh, quality of universal love you see and that's, that's the meta now the reason why I say that meta is the basic. Uh, relationship that we have uh, with each other, with all beings, is because you can see that once you're a friend to somebody, the other two illimitables arise quite naturally. So, <clears throat> if, if a friend falls ill or you know into misfortune, there's a natural desire to help. It's not a, it's not a problem; it just arises naturally out of that friendliness. You don't have to work on it. And if somebody, if a friend, you know, has good fortune, you know, you tend to congratulate them and you're happy for them you feel there's a resonance a resonance, a joyful resonance it's called sympathetic joy or reciprocal joy it's a resonance you, know, you feel their happiness and you're happy for them if they win the lottery you're extremely happy you, know, you don't want a penny <laughs> you're not upset when they don't even buy you a drink see it's that sort of <laughs> and you're still gleeful that day having such a good life so <clears throat> that um, uh, that love you see that way we, that, we, uh, that we the Buddha ask us to develop is, is the platform for all these other for all these other qualities now when it comes to love itself you know the uh, as we've pointed out the the, uh, the big obstacle there is affection the obvious one is hatred I mean that's pretty straightforward. But the, the more subtle one is affection or attachment, and uh, you can see this often in the case of a parent. Um, you know, like if, um, if, if their little child comes home with a black eye, you know, it's the end of the world, you know. But if it's a cheeky kid from down the street, it's well, it deserves it. <laughs> but there's, that, there's that sort of um, attachment. Which sort of creates a speciality around the person whom you have, uh, whom you have that relationship with. Now, as I say, you can't do you can't do anything about that. It's just like when we open up to ourselves and we find these various states. It's a case of making ourselves aware of that, you see, and making sure that we're making decisions, intentions that go the other way. Now, one of the things this weekend um, was really trying to catch these intentions a bit because remember it's at the point of intention that we have this ability to choose and we can see the quality of that intention and if you see that um, the intention you're making is, is flavored or is laced with some sort of um, attachment then you know just, just just make sure you make the right intention and work from that intention So, it's just like with food, you see. With food, as soon as we make the intention to eat to nourish the body, it creates a different relationship to food. But as soon as you seek their happiness, then that's it. It doesn't mean that the food doesn't make you happy, it's just that your intention uh, corrupts your relationship to food. It then becomes, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, a sort of a dependency. So your happiness becomes dependent on on a particular food that you like. When it comes to um, compassion, that's um, that's that again is uh, I mean the opposite is obvious. Cruelty we don't have to work too much on that. I hope. Uh, but the, uh, the 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 subtle one is um, grief. You see, pity, pity, grief. Um, that's a bit difficult for, people, for us to grasp really because the association of compassion with grief is, is quite intimate we think that um, the more we feel sorry for somebody uh, the more in a sense we're, we're compassionate but if you think about it um, to move from the heart of compassion is actually a joyful moment a heart is filled with joy when you're helping somebody yeah. If it's you know, if it's it, it, you, let's take a very simple case. If I don't know, if, if a blind man wants to walk across the street, you know, and you just do it just out of out of kindness, and you say you know, and you take his take his arm and uh, and lead him across. It's a sense of joy, isn't it? Is it all right? Yeah. If you grieve for the blind person, then what is it you're adding to that? You know, and is it is it necessary? Take, uh, sometimes it's easier to understand that when you actually think about yourself. Supposing you were, so we say, um, struck down or something, and everybody around you started weeping and wailing. I mean, would that help you? <laughs> you know, it's like it just makes you more sad, you know, go away. You know, I've got enough, <laughs> I've got enough grief. <laughs> If you take, for instance, um, which is, you see, these things are completely understandable, and I think you have to make a distinction here between good and bad in the sense of evil and skillful, unskillful, wholesome, unwholesome. We're not saying that grief is some sort of great evil, we're just saying it's, it's unnecessary suffering. That's all. Not, it's not necessary. We can relieve ourselves of the need to grieve for somebody. It undermines the purity of our compassion. See, uh, If you take, for instance, um, somebody who's uh, feeling ill and, and they go to the doctor and, and they have a diagnosis and, and the doctor tells them that they've only got six weeks to live but they just can't contain their grief and they're blubbering and saying, I'm sorry, I mean, how would you feel about that? You <laughs> You think this is highly unprofessional. (laughs) So of certain professionals, we're quite happy for them to tell us, you know, in a kind, sympathetic way. We're not asking them to be brutal, in a kind, sympathetic way, in an understanding way. But we would hate for them to collapse into tears as a surgeon, and as he's sort of doing his job, he's weeping. I mean, it wouldn't help, would it? (laughs) If (laughs) there's something, something definitely wrong, you know. So, uh, if you if you really look into pity, <clears throat> uh, pity, gr- you know that sort. Of, perhaps pity is a slightly better word, although although it melts easily into grief. You see, <clears throat> if you like going back a little bit to love, when somebody dies, you're left with grief. Okay. Now, what is that grief? Is that a measure of your love or a measure of your attachment? That's the point. You know, I had an old lady come to me whose son had died, and she'd been grieving over this son for years, and uh, just wouldn't leave her, just depressed her all the time, and when we discussed it, and she came to realize that actually the grief was the measure of her attachment, and not her love, uh, you know, like, it just lifted, I could see it was lifting even there and, even then and there when I was talking to her, you know, she she actually wrote me a letter later saying that all the grief had gone once she'd, once she'd separated the idea of grief from love, you see So remember that an attachment is like um, You know, it's like I mean, That word is a rather nice word It's like, like you're glued hmm? And when somebody you're glued to Is sort of ripped out of your life uh, in death You're just left with this wound You're left with an inner wound, you know and just because you might now think, well, this is, this is because of my attachment, it doesn't mean to say that, therefore, it hasn't to be suffered and allowed to heal. And that's the grieving process. But as soon as you say to yourself, well, this grief is a measure of my love, every time your grieving begins to lessen, you, you have to say to yourself, well, I don't love that person as much as I did. So you've got to grieve again. You've got to keep pumping it up. Because <laughs> you, you, you can't handle the guilt of not loving the person. But but love is easy, isn't it? Love is love is um, love is easy with things. It, it allows people their destiny. You know, if a person has had to die young or whatever. Um, that's it. You, you've got to let them go. You know. Well, you know. It's, it's just the way it is, as we say. So now, this compassion has as its um as as it's one of its things is is grief. But there's an even more subtle problem, especially with compassion and that is that in this, it's the do good factor, it makes you feel good when you do good, especially somebody who uh, thanks you and, and obviously appreciates your help yeah? and then there's a, there's a very subtle shift, often without a person knowing it You see that in fact you start doing good in order to feel good yeah? and then you become the classic do gooder And the do-gooder is the person who's going to do you the good they want to do you, (laughs) whether whether you like it or not. And you can always catch that little do-gooder in in ourselves uh, because if you've jumped the gun, you see, and this is where this equanimity comes, because with equanimity, one goes to the person who needs help with that open-minded, open-heartedness. And you say, what do you want? See? And then when they tell you what they want then you can say to yourself well can I do it or can't I do it you see, it's a very simple choice if you can then you help if you can't you can't but <clears throat> if you jump the gun and, and suggest to them what they need <laughs> and they and they brush you off you see and you feel hurt then you know there's, there's something else going on in the you know in, in, in this transaction <laughs> so you know it's, it's pretty good you have to be you have to be careful of that one The other thing about compassion that I think people feel these days is uh, a feeling of impotency, a feeling of n- not being able to do what they know has to be done. Um, you know about even even about things which are big, like you know this disaster in Burma or or in China, or, or the fact that we're now uh, got a food shortage for no reason, but it seems that of the of the futures market, and. Um, people get into that emotional involvement with the world and what's happening to the world, and then they get this terrible feeling of frustration, uh, you know, complete impotence. They feel, feel com- unable to do anything, unable to do enough. And, and that really is, is not, again, a pure compassion. That's not coming from equanimity. See? That's coming, again, from pride. And pride here doesn't know the limits of power and influence. So when we do something, yeah, that what it it is within our power. You have a ring of power around you, right? What you can actually do, and then there's another outer ring of influence, what you can get other people to do, and then beyond that, that's it. That's that's the end of what you can do and can get others to do, and it's it's just being able to accept that and being equanimous with it. That one has done what one can do. I went um, I went on a retreat once. and there were um, four different traditions no no there was, there was a Chan teacher uh, there was me doing the Old Vipassana there was uh, an orthodox uh, monk and there was would you believe it the archbishop of not himself <laughs> 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 and we were supposed to be sharing these uh, these uh, teachings and um on the koan he gave us all these koans to do you see and some of them of course just don't make sense to me at all but the the last few at the end were very modern koans and one of them was which really struck me you see it said what can you do when you've done everything you can do see what can you do when you've done everything you can do and it's that it's that it's that point where we think we can always do more than we can yeah and that's where the frustration comes. That's where the, the sense of impotency can come. You see, so we also have to be careful of that. We have to be sort of realistic about what our what our role is in any given situation. You know, even even when it comes to say giving to charities. You know, they, they're constantly coming through the door. These, <laughs> you know, and it and it always. Uh, he always says 50p, you know, or you know, 50 cents. And you think, well, <laughs> but by the end, by the end of you giving your 50 cents to all these charities, you end up being a pauper. So it's a case of sort of recognizing that, well, this is what I can do. This is what I can get other people to do. And then you just rest in that. And that's the quality of equanimity, you see. That's the quality of equanimity. Uh, sympathetic joy. I mean, that's a that's a lovely uh, quality, isn't it? To be able to rejoice in other people's good fortune, and it undermines, you know, the sort of uh, obvious thing which is envy, isn't it, and jealousy. And uh, those are two things that we don't like to see in ourselves. Envy's not so bad. You can sort of say to somebody, "I, I envy, you know, your your lifestyle or something." But jealousy is one of these. Uh, traits within us, which uh, you know we don 't we don 't particularly like to see because when we 're jealous we 're actually saying to myself well i 'm not better <laughs> this person's better than me <laughs> so it's it 's often a very um subconscious thing which comes out in all sorts of ways um, and in our meditation uh you know if it comes up in meditation very quickly sort of you know, really catch it and get the feel of it. It's not a, not a pleasant mental state at all. Um, I, you know, there, there would have been a time when I, when I would have gone around saying, well, I'm not jealous of anybody, you know. But I remember, um, this is a, a little while back, <clears throat> I, um, there was, I, I used to try to write plays at one point. <laughs> And uh, by this time, I was being to recognize that... Um, wasn't quite going to make Shakespearean, uh, you know, standards. So, but there was this young fellow who got a play on, you see. And uh, one of the few times I really caught my my jealousy. It was a really sort of nasty moment. I thought, oh my God. (laughs) And it really is a a sort of nasty, nasty sort of emotion. But it's a very... Um, it really undermines joy, you see. This is, the, this is the problem with all these negative things. They kill your own joy. You, know? you can't be joyful and jealous and envious at the same time. You know, this is one of the, one of the problems. The, um, the more subtle energy, the more subtle uh, thing about joy is of course uh, sort of overdoing it, getting excited, jumping up and down a bit too much, you know, so that it takes on a sort of false character. You have to be careful of that too. But it's probably uh probably the easiest one for us to to uh enjoy more purely anyway, especially with friends. But uh going back now to this you know, this fundamental <coughs> <coughs> position of love, you see, this meta, this uh this goodwill, it's translated sometimes in a slightly mawkish way as sort of loving kindness, which they take I think from a a 14th-century uh, mystic, but it's to me it just means goodwill, which is which I think translates it very openly, and um, and then all the other things that we that we uh, suffer from, you see, um, trying to find a way to to generate the opposite, and you'll see this evening that. Whereas in Vipassana, we try to stop the thinking mind, try to stop the imaginative mind completely. It's a hindrance to actually seeing things as they really are. When it comes to developing these qualities within us, uh, we actually begin to use the imaginative mind to uh, reinforce and to develop certain qualities. So when we practice the metta, as we did a little bit last night, we bring people to mind, you see, and you, you offer them your goodwill, your blessings. Whether these things actually affect them or not is, is, you know, is, is up to you, is whether, they, whether you want to believe that or not. But what it's doing is, is developing an attitude within us. You see? And it's, uh, as we widen that scope out to include all beings, we're just slowly developing an attitude of goodwill to all beings. And we're using these very faculties that, in the, in the past, have become hindrances. An and it's the same with with the compassion and the joy. Now, if you look at just other things like um, um, loneliness, see, sometimes you might feel lonely. Well, what what do you what do people do when they feel lonely? Eh? And normally, you know, you'd ring up a friend and say, I'm so, you know, but I'm lonely tonight. Say, well, we, I'm lonely too. Two lonely people watching a film or something. Like, and it's that sense of. Now, where it, it, to feel the loneliness, to feel the, the loneliness kind of, what, what is it? What is it? What is the feeling of it? So, this is how you begin, you see, just like in your meditation. You begin by sinking into that, the feel of loneliness. And. It's a lack of self love, isn't it? That's basically what it is. You, you don't like being on your own. <laughs> and as you as you sink in there, you see, you might get all sorts of things, sort of little little blips arriving, you know, you're unlovable. Nobody loves you <laughs> all that sort of rubbish comes up, you know. But if you but if you stay with your vipassana and you go into the feeling base of it, you see, then as it begins to evaporate, you see then the opposite begins to appear. Hmm? So when loneliness disappears, what can you expect at the end of the line, you see? Yeah. So it's solitude, isn't it? And solitude is being perfectly at peace and at one with yourself. Yeah? So to develop that, you, know, you have to um, uh, you know, give blessings to yourself. You have to start turning this metta and this compassion towards yourself. And that's how you begin to undermine uh, these feelings of depression, loneliness, uh, lack of self-esteem. So you actually, you don't get caught up in the the usual fantasies and the thinking around those negative feelings. You do your vipassana. Anyway, you'd be on a bus, you could be standing under a trader's matter, and you just sink into that feeling. And then as it begins to loosen up, you don't have to wait for it to completely end, best if you can but not necessary then you start offering yourself these blessings okay? and in that way you're developing another conditioning okay? remember a lot of our opinions about ourselves we've picked up from other people you know it's when teachers have told us we're stupid or our parents have told us you know we'd rather keep a rat <laughs> <laughs> things like that and we sort of we sort of picked this up from people and, and ingested it, and it's become part of our own mentality. And it's a case of not, you don't get into blaming them, by the way. You just, you just that's just a, or something that naturally happens to us as children. And it's just recognizing that, you know. But again, always not to get caught up in the in these, you know, in, in the fantasies, in the way we talk to to ourselves. Um, <clears throat> so that, that gives you some sort of hints as to how we can, you know, generate um, uh, the positive side. There are many other, other qualities, and the final one I'd like to sort of mention is the one that see, the Buddha always began his talks with. Whenever he talked to lay people, whenever he introduced himself as a teacher and what his teaching was about, uh, he always talked first of all about generosity, and then the, the nature of um, good conduct, wholesome, ethical conduct. Then he would talk about the heavens and, and future life births and all that. And then when he felt that the audience was malleable, ready for the thing, he'd smack them with the old dukkha, you see? <laughs> the four noble truths. There is suffering, there is an infusion. But he sort of uh, softened them up first with a couple of, <laughs> with a couple of nice things. And uh, generosity is, um, you might say, a very, uh, from the Buddhist point of view, a really sort of important uh, quality to develop. And um, there's, there's when you're generous, <clears throat> it's, it's an act of love, yeah, it's an act of compassion. You're, you're giving something for the benefit of somebody else. But in doing so, you have to give something up you either have to give up some of your wealth or some of your time and to do that means an act of renunciation and when that renunciation uh, every, time we, every time we give an act of renunciation we actually are cutting into the solidity of the self See? so where does somebody might say can you come and help me and you want to you watch your favourite programme on TV so you, have to, you have to give that up and that's, that's the attachment to this program. Okay. Where every time you make an offering of your wealth, um, you're giving up something which you could have bought for yourself, which you could have enjoyed for yourself. And every time you do that, especially in an act of generosity, which, which shall we say, just tweaks a bit, okay? you don't have to really suffer, but where, <laughs> where, where you know you're, you're actually giving something up, then that's undercutting this, this attachment to uh, this idea of us, you know, to to the to the concreteness of a self, just being able to let go of something for the benefit of the other. And um, when you give, whether you give to a, a charity or to a friend or whatever, um, again, it's always getting this intention right, being very clear about your intention. Yeah. So that at the point of saying yes, or at the point of giving something, uh, you, your intention is very clear that you're giving this for the benefit of the other and you do not want any return. It's a complete letting go of the gift, whatever it might be. Hmm? Yeah? So if, if your friend says, you know, can you come and help me do a bit of decoration? You see, when you ask them, could they come do a bit of decoration? They say, no, that's fine. <laughs> There's no pain, no, no sorrow. You've completely forgotten in fact, that you'd help them do their decoration. Is that sort, of, <laughs> is that sort of, of giving? Now, if you've got to put that clearly in your mind, just like food, you see, you say to yourself, "This is just to nourish the body." See? You get the. And then you do the act, or you give, your, you give your, uh, your donation or whatever. Now as soon as you've done that, of course, you're bound to get these little comments. You are such a generous person. See? You really are. You're wo- really wonderful. It's amazing how wonderful you are. <laughs> or, too much, take a bit back. You, give, you, know, you can't spend a whole day doing it. See? It's like, <laughs> see? But you know them, you see? You say, ah, that's old Mara. You, see? you caught it, you've beaten old Mara there, you see? And very slowly, those, uh, those voices, those little negative conditionings, uh, they sort of die away. And this more spontaneous um, action comes. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want to live spontaneously. Not by way of just some reaction, uh, some old habit, you see. And that's what the qualities give us. They give us this feeling of, of, uh, of spontaneity in our lives, where joy, where joy just arises naturally out of any action that we do, see. And that's one of the gifts of, um, of developing these particular qualities. So you can see here, can't you, the, the development of the spiritual life, you know, the the vipassana, the right understanding, getting things right, turning it into intentions. See, this is the eightfold path: right intention, right attitude, turning them into clear intentions. Clear intentions, yeah. And then the way we speak, the way we act, even our livelihood. See, so how do we how do we turn our livelihood, uh, what we actually do uh, within society? How do we turn that into a spiritual practice? <coughs> and again, it's turning it into a service See? again it's that generosity, it's the offering mm. and then that whole, that whole spiritual practice becomes systemic there's not a part of you which is not involved in that progress mm. if you stop at any point there'll be a block, there'll be something something won't pass, something won't happen for you it just has to be like that and the last three of the Eightfold Path, the right uh, effort and the right mindfulness and the right concentration, um, those follow us wherever we go. See, That's this business of just being in the, in the moment, relaxing into the present moment, wide awake. See? That's your default position. And you can do that all the time. You don't have to do it just when you're on retreat. Anytime during the day when there's a break, when you're not doing something, you remind yourself just to fall into that, into that state. Doesn't matter how long, it could be a second. It could be just a second. Mm? And always in that state you can see the next intention. So that's, the, that's the, the importance of it. When you're in a rush, when you're always moving, you can't, you get grasped, you get grasped by old, old conditionings. But if you, can keep, if you can keep collapsing everything, you see, into this state of just being here, you see the next intention. And it gives you that sense of control, you see, of your life, that you're actually guiding yourself, you're actually moving the way you want to move. So I can only hope that my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated sooner rather than later. <laughs> you have to say sadhu. So I feel really bad. You see, <laughs> there, were ta- <laughs> there, were, there were talks that the Buddha gave where the monks did not respond. I don't know how he felt. <laughs> there were others when they were, the monks were delighted, he says, and, and the listeners were delighted. And there are other discourses where the listeners were <laughs> delighted. <laughs> they always said things that they didn't want to hear. <laughs> so um, if we do uh, some walk meditation about half past seven. And uh, during this one, in order to support the meta, the better practice, um, do more, you know, just, just relaxing, just being with the walking, don't worry too much about the investigation. Just develop that quality of calmness and um, just that moment momentary attention, just momentary attention to what you're doing. And then we'll come back and do uh, the next Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.